Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 75 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a fantastic show lined up for you today and we hit the uh, uh, momentous milestone of 75 episodes in the can as of today and I can think of no better way to enjoy that milestone and duly celebrate it than with this week's guest. So in a short while I'll be sharing with you this week's interview and discussion all rolled into one with my guest, the inimitable Michael A. Perez. Then, instead of the usual hypnosis in the news section, I'm going to discuss the differences and similarities between forms of meditation and self-hypnosis from both a neuroscientific and phenomenological perspective. I will round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I then bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, please do go give us a favourable rating, even a review at iTunes or be a BFF if you do. And it takes just a couple of seconds, you know, one or two clicks just to give us a rating at iTunes and it helps us greatly. So first of all today, um, this week's interview uh, with Michael Perez, uh, you regular listeners will be aware that uh, I announced Michael as a guest um, 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 formally, um, but was unable to get everything organised properly, um, so I was delighted to be able to reorganise and reschedule. Michael is one of the most popular choices of guest whenever I put out a call um, for guests that, would, you know, that, that you'd like me to join, uh, that you'd like to join me on the show. Um, on the Facebook group that I run, um, I wrote that this episode is a veritable gold mine, and uh, uh, to, to whet the appetites of those that were reading, um, I mentioned a couple of snippets from my episode notes that I made while Michael, Michael and I were recording, and I mentioned um, um, that Michael refers to his time in a horse x-ray machine, uh, his reference of Freud's Ubermensch, um, his reference of conscious and unconscious as 
ontological entities, Frank Sinatra's epistemological mantra, communicating with the mammalian brain, and Michael's own integrated systemic approach to hypnosis. And these are just some of the mini headings from one corner of one piece of paper of my notes. So the interview happens, and I sort of have some semblance of the usual structure and questions, but then it it all naturally moved into areas that Michael specialises in and expertly speaks about. Initially, he talks about how we synthesise and integrate modern understandings of cognition and neurological function and aspects of hypnotic practice. We also talk about and discuss how, how to discard 19th and 20th century frameworks when thinking about different schools of hypnosis in order to seek out a more scientifically plausible way uh, to perhaps let go of some of the, some of the less plausible Uh, but seemingly prevalent theories of mind and finding a a universal framework for hypnotic communication. Um, Something, you know, all topics which Michael presents beautifully here. There's lots packed into this discussion. Be present, pay attention. And for now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview and discussion with Michael Perez. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome to Hypnosis Weekly the one and the only Mr. Michael Perez. Michael, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Well, you know, I just would like to start out with a, a minor correction. Yes. Being that Perez is an extremely common <laughs> Spanish last name. Yeah. And Michael is an extremely common first name. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that I'm not the one and the only Michael Perez, but I certainly yeah. am one of them. Yeah, I'm in... Uh, yeah, yeah, probably what I should have done is I probably should have should have contextualized that. You see, you see, I was thinking of Michael Perez, the phenomenon rather than Michael Perez, the name. Um, I'm, I'm sure sorry, I should have qualified that. So, Michael, and, let's... And, and, and of course, I was too busy being Michael Perez, the pedant. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, you know, not many people ever, ever have the humility to actually uh, uh, accept that and say that of themselves on this particular show. Um, now, for people that that, that that aren't aware of you currently, um, um, mm. um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, um, how, you, how you got into this field, a little bit about what your background is and how you've arrived at, at where you are now? Yeah, well, you know, it was a bit of a circuitous route, uh, I must admit. I started out um, actually uh, working in IT, mm. and uh, one of the things that I had to do at a, at a certain point in my career uh, was I had to teach uh, I had to teach IP, IT people how to to speak human, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is which is not always easy. No, that's no mean and, thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be quite quite an interesting feat sometimes. And so the end result is is that uh, I took a look around. I found um, neuro linguistic programming, which is something that a lot of hypnotists uh, look at in very different ways. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, that was something that promised to help me to understand human language and human communication, so that I could teach it to these guys. Because, of course, I was by that time, I was a pretty good communicator, but I had no idea how I did it. Mm. And so understanding the structure of communication so that I could teach it to someone else became really important. And the fact that it was using a programming metaphor made it ideal for IT people. Yeah. 
uh, because that just you know that was that was their home field advantage right there. So they 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 were off like a shot. And one of the things that I noticed was is that as I was teaching communication skills to these guys, they started changing their lives at home or outside of the work environment. Mm. And it was just, just these shifts in thinking the way that you think about how other people mean what they say or what might they say by what they mean, or just understanding that, you know, what I think you meant by what you said is not necessarily what you meant. And I can also (laughs) be responsible for my own meaning yeah. You know, not not just to presume you understood me and decided to do what you did anyway. Uh, and so this this became a really huge thing for me. And I started to do um, change work, you know, or therapy on the side. And as I started to do that, I became really more and more interested in more sophisticated ways because I started hitting my edge conditions. I started hitting the boundaries of what I could do. And that's when I started um, to study uh, hypnosis because I, I saw that hypnosis in its purer form, let's say, yeah, was a really powerful medium and that hypnotists were capable of doing some things in the case studies that I was reading. They were capable of doing things that I could not do yet. Mm. Um, so I spent a lot of time um, – and, and and I tend to to whenever there is a parochial approach to anything, whenever there's a sectarian split, yeah. I have a tendency to become really fascinated in uh, in studying all sides. Yeah. So although I you know because uh, uh, NLP of course is grounded a lot in the in the work of Milton Erickson, I spent a lot of time studying Ericksonian hypnosis, realizing that Ericksonian hypnosis had very little to do with what Erickson was doing and then directly studying what we had and what I could find of Erickson working directly. Yeah. And then after that, um, studying different hypnotic styles more broadly. And then finally, just kind of, you know, once I was good at doing a lot of different things, then I started to do kind of a... Uh, uh, sort of a comprehensive analysis of asking what are the similarities, what are the differences, and what are the possible fusions of these different ways of working. Mm. Um, so, so I sort of came up with kind of an integrated systemic approach to using aspects of all the different styles of hypnosis and asking what works best when. Mm. Now, at about that time, the neuroscience revolution, right at the very tail end of the 1990s, kicked in. And, you know, and you had the first uh, fMRIs, the first brain scanners, and um, Candace Pert's really groundbreaking work on neurochemistry and the molecules of emotion. Yeah. And as all of this sort of kicked in, Suddenly, I was like, wow, you know, this – because if I start to look at what we are now starting to learn about the brain, because up until that time, everything that we had learned about the brain had come from studying dysfunction. Yeah. So in other words, somebody got a lesion (laughs) on some part of their brain Mm. and then then they suddenly weren't able to do something. And then – so neuroscientists just kind of went, well – that means that the this part of the brain is the whatever part of the brain. Oh, there's a lesion there. He can't talk. It must be the speaking part of the brain. 
Mm. You know, there's a lesion there. He can't recognize faces in the fusiform gyrus. It must be the facial recognition module. Yeah. Well, I, I want you to think about this, Adam. If if you uh, let's say that you suddenly got an injury to your ankle. Yeah. And therefore you couldn't walk. Using this approach, I might say that the ankle is the walking part of the body. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course. Yeah. And of course, yes, there is. The ankle is involved in walking, <laughs> but it is not the walking part of the body. There's a whole no. bunch of stuff. And, and so that's really it is that suddenly scientists could look at a functioning brain, which is not something that's easy to do uh, without a brain scanner. Yes. Because if you pop someone's skull open and you look at the brain's functioning, it won't function for long. No. So the end result <laughs> is, is that is that we could suddenly watch a brain work and we started learning all kinds of things. It turned most of what we what we thought we knew on its head. Yeah. And we also began to realize how much we don't know, how much more we don't know than even we thought we didn't know. <laughs> yeah. And, but the thing is, but it opened up this entire new paradigm and paradigms for thinking about things. Now, the other thing was that was also really interesting was up until up until that point, uh, psychologists had pretty much settled on the idea that hypnosis was uh, simple compliance. Mm. It might even be some kind of heightened compliance, but it was compliance. And that there was no special brain function that was in any way being accessed by the group of various kinds of communication tools that we, we call hypnosis. Yeah. But one of the things that the neurologists started to do is they started to use hypnosis in order uh, to make the brain do funny things. Yeah. Because they could watch the brain and they could see what it was doing. And they said, you know what, this, this is not usual. There's nothing unnatural happening here. It's just what's 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 different is the context. You know, for example, one of the first really exciting things that I heard was from Harvard University where uh, they were doing some of their pre preliminary uh, brain scanning uh, experiments. And yeah. what they were finding was is that the in terms of if you look at the parts of the brain and the extent to which they are activated and the kinds of activation and the patterns of activation – that people who were undergoing certain kinds of hypnosis were uh, in what was approaching um, a uh, hypnogogic state. Mm. So in other words, it's the state that, that's between sleeping and wakefulness in the morning. It was that kind of brain activation. Yeah. And, and so the, the end result is, is that this is not the kind of brain activation that normally takes place during a regular conversation. Most conversations are not you waking up. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, exactly. But suddenly here was a kind of conversation that was producing a brain state that was akin to waking up. It was half asleep and half awake and making a transition. And, uh, and of course, we also started to learn all kinds of other things. We started to learn about um, – you know, first off, we learned that the two hemispheres are largely identical in function, but we found out that the prefrontal cortex on both sides functioned very, very differently. So one of the things that we discovered was that essentially, again, this, this was a kind of communication that was producing a kind of brain activity that while it was not unnatural in any way, it, the context was unnatural. 
because mm. because you don't normally in the course of a regular conversation you don't go from sleeping to waking up for example yeah exactly uh, unless it's a very strange conversation of course. <laughs> yeah you know, uh, yeah, I've had a few of those 3 a.m. phone calls, but, you know, but, but that's not normally what we think of as hypnosis. And, and the other thing that, al- that also began to come out, we began to understand the hemispheric differences between um, the two parts, uh, or the two hemispheres of the brain. We started to understand that they largely are identical in function. However, the prefrontal cortex varies quite quite massively in terms of what it does mm. um, on one side and the other. We started to learn about when which side was dominant because, you know, we'd always thought that there was a dominant and a non-dominant hemisphere. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that there are certain states that flip the dominance. Yeah. And, and it also turns out that when you flip the dominance, the brain can do things it cannot otherwise do. Mm. And so I started to put all of this stuff together and basically being, you know, as, as you know, I'm, I'm sort of an, uh, a systems thinker. And so the way that I had sort of rejiggered hypnosis to bring it together into sort of sort of a unified field theory, yeah. I then started reexamining hypnosis in the light of what was coming out of cognitive neuropsychology mm. and, and functional uh, neurology. And I started, you know, putting a lot of stuff together. And that's where a lot of the old explanations began to fall apart. Yeah. Because once you looked at it in terms of functional um, imaging, yeah. then you, you know, and, and, and once we begin, and look, I, in no way, I'm not heaping anything but praise on the men who came up with these, these theories because they were extraordinary people who did not have any idea what the brain was doing and tried their best to understand it only looking at external function. Absolutely. And so once we began to, to be able to look inside, yeah. that, that's when the world changed. And that's, and, and of course that's when, you know, hypnosis will, I believe necessarily change. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Because you know, what, what, we are not our behavior, I suppose, is a rather rudimentary way of, of, of mm. me attempting to 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 to, 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 to sort of uh, draw a parallel. Um, um, sure, there. sure. You, you know, for, for the, the external recognition of, of, of what was going on with people, but only being able to measure it behaviorally um, yes. um, is, is, is quite different when when we have this technology that's able to identify what's happening in the brain. Yes, exactly. And and it's just, you know, you can understand that a behavior can can emanate from a hundred different states of activity. Yeah. So the, the so the question is not how do you do that? The question is, what is producing how you do that? And how does the difference in how you produce that change what you do? Mm. Because, I mean, if we just look at, uh, you know, one of the things that, that is, well, okay, I'm going to use a personal example because we're, I'm, I'm, I'm ostensibly telling you about myself, even though I'm talking about the neuroscience revolution. Yeah. But one of the things that happened to me was in about 2003 or four, something like that, a little bit fuzzy, but, uh, you know, we'll understand why in a moment. Um, I was, um. Uh, I was doing, you know, uh, I was continuing my IT career. Now, by this time, I was doing about 80 hours a week of stuff. I was right. doing about 
35 to 40 hours on business stuff, which also included business coaching, which also included designing trainings, um, which also included modeling exemplars of excellence, breaking down what they did and creating a teachable um, format from that so that you could take some of the best performers and teach others to do that. So I was, I was doing all of those things. Yeah. And, and then the rest of the time I was running um, my hypnosis business where I was just, you know, essentially doing a combination of, of performance coaching and um, therapeutic work. And during that time, I was I had just moved to Europe mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, well, you know, because there was uh, some pressure in my uh, in my life to create a kind of a new nest egg since I had sort of swapped continents. And so I was, you know, I, so I was thinking to myself, well, I'm going to I'm going to do this corporate work for another little while. I'm going to put aside a nest egg and then I'll switch over and I'll start doing the therapeutic stuff full time. Yeah. Well, one thing that I have found is that life has a tendency to step in and do things for you. Yeah, right. So, so I, I went to my, uh, I, I, I woke up one morning and I had uh, felt a feeling that I'd felt a few times before in my life. I, I, it felt like I'd pulled a muscle in my back. Mm. So I said to myself, okay, I know what the usual script is. The usual script is I go into work. And then progressively throughout the day, it becomes more and more painful to, to move. And then I have to leave halfway through the day and can barely dr operate the car to drive home because my back, you know, uh, my muscles uh, movement are, are constrained by the, the back pain. Hmm. So I said, you know what? I'm going to play it smart because I know what's going to happen. I need to rest and relax for a couple of days until this muscle uncramps un or whatever, and then it'll be fine. Yeah. So I called into work and I said, you know what? I'm not going to be in for a couple of days. I'll, I'll bring you a doctor's note. <laughs> and I said, okay, I, I have played this smart. And so I got, I settled in and I just, you know, grabbed some books and, and hang, hung out in bed and, you know, and just use it as an excuse to laze around for a little bit. But the next morning when I woke up, I realized that this pain had done something that I wasn't expecting it to do. It had started to move down my arm and it was making it so that I could not lift things easily with my with my right arm. Mm. Now, this was unusual, and I understood that. So I yeah. immediately hobbled down um, to my doctor's office, and he said, "Okay, I, I need I need for you to get some X-rays." And then I went to go get some X-rays. Now, the one thing you should also know about me is that I, I'm I'm a bit of a hulking uh, person. You see, I'm 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 six foot three. I'm six foot three. But I'm not tall. I am a normally uh, a proportioned person scaled up. <laughs> so when I went to take the x-ray, I came back to my doctor. He said, you know what? I can't see anything in this x-ray. You need to go to this place. And he sent me to a veterinarian uh, a veterinarian's hospital. And they, they, use, they use the x-ray machine that they I'm normally use. I'm sorry for laughing. I'm sorry for I'll, laughing. Uh, it's hilarious. Because <laughs> uh, they use the x-ray machine that they normally use on a horse. Yeah, that, that, that's what so, I would mention. That's what I would imagine. Um, um, the mountain, the, the Game yes. of Thrones character, the mountain. He would need to go in one of those, right? Very, very similar. Yes, <laughs> the, you know. So that, that the mountain is one of my folks. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, so they they finally they put me through the horse X ray machine, <laughs> and I take the I take the uh, the X ray back to the doctor, and he says, "Well, I've got bad news and I've got worse news." 
I said, well, give me the bad news first. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> yeah. he, said, he said, well, first off, it's not a pulled muscle. I said, well, what's the worst news? He said, well, um, you've got osteoarthritis of your spine. Your vertebrae are crumbling. It's a degenerative condition and there is no cure. Oh. I said, fantastic. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, I thought, I thought you'd enjoy that. My doctor is a sarcastic guy, which mm. I pr- that's one of the things I love about him. So anyway, so he says, yeah, he says, you know, the thing is, is that in about six months, you're probably not going to be able to move around very much uh, because the, the, your vertebrae are uh, where the uh, nerves come out of your spinal cord. Your vertebrae are jagged and they're basically sawing away at your nerves. Mm. I said, you know, that that sucks. And he goes, it absolutely does. But um, there's not a lot we can do about that. My recommendation is just don't move around very much. But eventually that won't matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> I said, okay, great. So anyway, so I, so there I was. Now, part of the problem that I ran into is that when you have a pain that's coming from something like osteoarthritis, it's going almost directly into your brain stem. Mm-hmm. This is not a pleasant sensation. No. Within a, within within about six weeks or so, I was essentially just in overwhelming chronic pain, and it was like I said, it, was, it wasn't even something I was habituating to. It was like a straight shot into my brain. I would sit down and I would try to read, and I would realize that I'd gotten to the end of the line and I couldn't actually continue. Because I'd forgotten what the first part of the line was, you know, and so yeah. now the the problem with this is that it was so disruptive of concentration because I had gotten pretty good at self-hypnosis and I'd gotten pretty good at, at doing pain control. Um, in fact, that's one of the things I did with a lot of clients, but I, but I tend to like to do things with myself first. Yeah. But the problem was, is that I suddenly was in a situation where I could not concentrate enough in order for me to do the things that I knew how to do that I could, that you know, use to create some analgesia or an- anesthesia. Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, to use uh, the colloquial expression, I, I was um, uh, quite uh, buggered. Mm. And... <laughs> <laughs> The the thing that happened was that over the course of time, I had just gotten that bit of information about from the Harvard study, mm. the bit about the hypnagogic state approximating a hypnotic state or a certain spectrum of the hypnotic states yeah. that we that we induce. And so one of the things that immediately occurred to me is is, is that if I could not alter my own state is there a way that i could leverage the state that i was naturally going into right and so one of the things that i did was is that basically i i i slowly but surely you know i I don't know if you've ever done this thing where like for example just before you go to bed at night you can say i want to wake up at 6 25 a.m yeah and then at approximately 6:23 a.m., you find yourself starting to wake up, mm. and then you look you look over and you realize that that you did just that. Yeah, you know, it's good because we we have a perfect clock in our bodies, we just Absolutely. don't have con- conscious access to it. Well, uh, you can very often essentially give yourself an order 
that you will follow um, the next day. And so one of the things that I did was is that I, I simply asked myself a question. I asked myself, in this space between waking and sleeping, how do I feel? I'm going to ask myself tomorrow morning, how do I feel? Mm. And, and, and the answer to that that came up the next day was, okay. Mm. I began to realize that in that state, I did not feel pain. Right. It, it didn't, it wasn't entering, it was impinging on my conscious awareness yet. Mm. So therefore the next thing that I did, uh, was I said, cause that was pretty much, okay, that, that was it for my day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, cause after that I went into pain and I'm like, okay, that, that sucks. But tomorrow morning, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to take a moment and examine the state what is it like? What does it feel like? What is it? What's the what's the geometry of my body? What you know? What is what is my felt sense of the world? Just I want to examine the state, and that's yeah. what I did the next morning. Then the next morning, once I kind of had a kind of a blueprint, something that made sense to me of what the state was like. Yeah, I said, okay, so here's what I want to do today. I want to extend that state by one minute. I want to stay there one minute longer. Now, one of the, what happened was, is that I did it for one minute and then I said, okay, the next day I'm, I'm going to do it for one more minute. And the next day I did it for two minutes. By the end of the week, it was seven minutes. By the end of a month, it was half an hour. Mm. In two months, it was an hour. At the end of a year, I had about six hours without pain where I could think, albeit in this kind of, you know, half awake, half asleep state. Wow. And then I had to start to ask myself, how, as I continue to extend this state, how can I add stuff or change stuff in this state that won't bring back the pain, but will bring back other aspects of consciousness? So, I mean, uh, in, in, in one in one way that, that there's yeah. not really a huge amount of suggestion even being used there i mean yeah. apart from apart from the suggestion for the for, for the prolonged experience of that state yes. really yes. it was just it was just about training yourself to be in that state for longer exactly and it was about kind mm. of an ex, an exploration of state and an experimentation with state what can i add what can what can't i add right yes and then it then it became about how do I do this thing that I couldn't do the old way? How can I do it in the new way? Right. Yeah. And now it took, and again, I'm, I am a slow learner. So it took about three years uh, for me to no longer be bedridden. Mm. But I, but I eventually, you know, first dealt with the pain, got my thinking place back and then started to add elements of hyperemperia and some of these other things that, that I'd used in other parts of hypnosis okay. to essentially, you know, pump up this state so that it could do a lot of other stuff. And then eventually, you know, and, and look, you know, I walk a bit like a turtle, but I walk. <laughs> and, <laughs> and your doctor had predicted six months towards six months until full immobility, right? Yeah. He, he was just expecting that I was essentially going to be bedridden and yeah. I was, but I was, I, you know, I mean, look, there, there's, there's a, a space in that old mattress uh, that I felt like keeping around just because it had a, a me-shaped indentation in it. <laughs> Where, you know, three years just sort of sunk in. 
But but eventually, you know, the thing is, is that eventually it got up and eventually it started moving around. And this, again, changed my fundamental thinking about hypnosis from a very experiential point of view. Yeah. Because I didn't have, you know, and look, this is the other thing. Because I had just moved to Europe, I know a lot of really good hypnotists. But I'm originally from the States. And everybody that I knew who could possibly come by and do some work with me to help me out wasn't available. Mm. And so I was stuck. You know, I was pretty much in, and I couldn't think that well to, to think about how to network my way out of it. So basically I was, I was all down to, okay, I have to do this myself. But that experience for me was absolutely transformative yeah. because once you work your way through something like that, you start to get a really good insight into, uh, in, into what people need to do. Now, this, this also brings me to the – and I realize I've been going on a bit long here, so my apologies. No, no, no. This, uh, uh, this is fascinating. One of the things that it also brought to me was, a, was a, a, another realization. One of the things that we often talk about in the context of hypnosis is we talk about hypnotizability. Mm. And from our previous paradigms, that is an absolutely valid concept because essentially hypnosis is a procedure. Some people can go, can use this procedure in order to be facilitated into an altered state of consciousness where they can do things they could not otherwise do. And other people cannot mm. and seem to be unable and therefore they are unhypnotizable in the way that we have thought about this. But if we think about the various things that we do with people in order to help them to enter into different kinds of altered states mm. and different different levels of brain activation, my first statement, and I and I say this understanding that I'm I'm perfectly happy to have this falsified. But my first statement is is that there are no brain states that we induce in the context of hypnosis that are unnatural states of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And and if that is true, to the extent that that hypothesis is correct, that means that everybody does these states naturally. And therefore, there are no unhypnotizable people. There are only people who needed to be guided into that state via different methodologies or different procedures mm. and if that's true see because if we are the expert if you and i as hypnotists are the expert in the room teaching them to do what we want them to do doesn't reflect the best level of expertise no the best level of expertise is learning what this person does in order to go into a state like that mm. and modulating what we do as we are the experts mm. so that we can shift what we do into a pattern that is sufficiently, that has enough overlap with what they do so that they can follow along. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if we, now if we think about it that way, then suddenly, you know, that kind of changes the world. So all of that stuff essentially has uh, created 
my current way of thinking about hypnosis, my current way of teaching it, and my current way of, you know, sort of doing um, the hypnotic facilitation, whether it's conversational or whether it's more traditional hypnosis with uh, the clients that I work with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I know that I know that some of this we would we would we would due to speak to speak about a, a bit later on, but it, it seems like sure. a, a really natural and really natural way to to sort of to to, to stay on that track if you, if you don't mind. And sure, is, of course. You know, are, are you um, um do you have a, a a a definition or a working model um um of of hypnosis? And 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 I mean, you've given us some ideas of how you've how you've journeyed through that, and yeah. and. And I'd be really interested to hear then how you how you then explain that to to clients if if, if you even bother explaining it um, to clients or other people when they ask you about uh, about what hypnosis is. I have a relatively simple way of explaining it, mm. and and it starts out with a story because almost everything that I say starts out with a story. So my apologies in advance. But one of the things I used to do is I used to have an office that was directly across the street from a dentist's office. Mm. And during this time, uh, after I got a chance to know the dentist, uh, he said, you know, some of my clients can't or won't uh, deal with uh, anesthetics. And would you be willing um, to try hypnosis with them? And I said, I can absolutely do that. So several times a week, um, you know, when it it was a busy week, I'd have somebody come through my door. And I would have a conversation with them. Now, the conversation did not sound like this, but this is the gist of the conversation. Now, I would say to them, I'd I'd say it in a very funny way, but I would say to them, now, I'm going to ask you to go across the street to see uh, the dentist, and I would like for you to agree with me that you will feel no pain during the procedure and that you will bleed as little as possible during the procedure. And that you will heal as quickly as possible from the procedure. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? And then they would say, now they wouldn't say it with words necessarily, and they would say it in a funny way, but they would say something that amounted to, absolutely, Michael, I'll do that. <laughs> now, I would then walk them across the street, because they were usually a little bit wobbly after that. <laughs> and they would sit down and they would have their dentistry done. And then and then the dentist would give me a call when they were about done and I'd go over and I'd walk them back across the street and I'd bring them out of it and I'd put them into a more normal state of consciousness and send them on their way. Mm. Now, under normal circumstances, if I went to you, Adam, and in most cases, unless you had an, uh, an unusually high, high th- pain threshold. If I said, Adam, I would like for you to go have a root canal and I want for you to please agree not to feel it when you do it. Is that okay? (laughs) And you could say yes with all of your heart. You could mean it, really, really mean it. And and that still when, you know, when that uh, when that little drill went in, uh, it would not necessarily change your feelings. Mm. You know, unless you were in a very small percentage of the population. But if you use this funny way of talking to people, and especially if you modulate what you're doing in order to match what this other person is doing and how they do that, you can help them to find a place where they don't feel that stuff going on in their mouth while they're having a dental uh, procedure done. Mm. And so 
my definition of hypnosis is hypnosis is any set of communications or procedures for communication that allow someone to do something that they cannot ordinarily do in more usual states of consciousness in that context. Mm. Mm. Um, um, there's so much in there making my making me smile. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, I'm really looking forward. <laughs> now, now, with with that, um, um, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned um, I made some reference to to studying Erickson's work. You made some reference yes. to Candice Peart um, uh, earlier yes. on. Can, can you tell us a little bit about 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 your major influences in, in these and related fields? Perhaps even share some of the some of the books and authors that have taught you most, or teachers that have been influential upon you, and perhaps some of the reasons why. Well, you know, uh, again, um, I've studied, uh, you know, I mean, and, you know, again, I've, I've looked at a number of different schools of hypnosis. Um, I found um, Orman McGill's uh, work to be uh, extremely, uh, you know, just fascinating to watch. Yeah. Um, I found, uh, again, Erickson was a, a major influence on me. Elman, um, you know, those two were just perpetually bickering. Mm. Uh, but quite frankly, I found Elman, uh, to also, again, be fascinating. Um, you know, and, and, and certainly, uh, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by some of the people who have put together kind of, you know, uh, I'm less interested in, uh, see, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of books is that most books focus on theory. Yeah. And most of the theory is misguided. Sure. I am, however, absolutely enthralled at watching practice. And that's what I would recommend that, that people who are interested in this do. Find people who are doing extraordinary things and get what if you can get in the room with them when they do them, absolutely that's the best thing. Yeah. If if you can get videos that's second best. If you can even just get some audio recordings, that's still up there. Mm. If you can get just case files, that's, you know, that's the best kind of reading as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite Erickson books, for example, is, is my voice uh, will go with you Yeah. because it just contains a lot of transcripts of stuff he said. Yeah. And then there's a little section where the person tries to explain what he thinks Erickson meant by what he said. I usually tell my students, you know, skip the commentary. Just read the stories. Understand what happened in the situation, then read the story. Yeah. Understand also that you are missing the analog uh, portion of the communication. You're only getting the digital bits. And with Erickson, analog was everything. It's not what he said. It's how he said it. Right. Yes. In the same way that I could say, you know, Adam, I love you. Hmm. And I could say, Adam, I love you. <laughs> and I could say, <laughs> Adam, I love you. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I'm saying exactly the same thing three times. Yeah. I, I, I and, liked the first one better. Exactly. Because because the first one has a very different meaning to the other two. Yeah. But if you were only reading my words, guess what? I said the same thing three times. Why yeah. would you react differently? Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, that, that's, that's kind of the other uh, really important thing that I think is going on with hypnosis is that 
it is not so much what you do, it is how you do it. It is it is how you show up in the room. It is how you convey who you are um, to the to to the other person with you. One thing that I'd like for just just to, to give this out as as an idea as a concept, because one of my favorite people that I'm also going to mention is um, I like people like um, Franz De Waal mm. or Robert Sapolsky. Mm. These are people who have done a lot of work with primates. Yeah. Because we're primates too. And sometimes a lot of the stuff that we're really talking about is primate stuff. Yes. We're putting people into a place and into a state where the words are window dressing. In fact, the words are a source of fixation. Concentrate on my words because that's not what I'm doing. Mm. But consciously put your awareness on what I'm saying. Because what I'm doing is happening beneath the level of digital language. Mm. Because digital language is mostly in the prefrontal cortex. But the prefrontal cortex, as we are finding out, has only an ancillary role in determining behavior. Most of your behaviors are happening from deeper parts of your brain. So if I'm talking to the deeper parts of your brain... If we, if we go to the triune brain model for a moment, understanding that it's actually a terrible neurological model, but it does make some sense in terms of helping us to understand the brain. That, that primate part of your brain is the bit up front. But guess what? That primate part of your brain does, does mostly planning and coming up with logical explanations for things. Mm. Mm. The rest of your brain is where action comes from. Yeah. And, but it's the primate part of your brain that talks. The deeper parts of your brain don't. Mm. Now, if that's the case, and I'm really wanting to talk to the deeper parts of your brain, guess what? My, and my digital language is superfluous. Yeah. Now, what that means is that that means that I'm I'm dealing with older, to use the metaphor, brain brain regions. I'm dealing with the mammalian brain and maybe even uh, what they call the reptilian brain. But what's actually going on is, is that I am creating a kind of theater for this person so that they are having experiences, they're acting things out, they're having feelings, I'm demonstrating feelings, I'm imputing feelings, I'm taking sometimes a dominant role uh, in order to, uh, to induce stress for certain things. I'm taking a cooperative role in other parts in order yes. to, in, to induce relaxation and the kind of out of the box thinking, uh, that comes from deeply relaxed states. I'm doing all of these things. Mm. And as I do these things, I am doing them as a, as both an, uh, an imposition and an, imp and, and a, 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 a demonstration bringing this other person along with me. Mm. And, and so therefore I think that a lot of the, the most successful hypnotists are people who can deeply embody the work that they are doing and can, and can communicate, can broadcast not only what's going on, uh, you know, in, in terms of language or in terms of, you know, repeating, uh, a script or, you know, or, or a pattern. Yeah. But it's really about the, con you know, congruently and powerfully held communication. I want you to think about one thing, Adam, and this is, a, this is something that I know that you think about a lot. 
in in your way, and but I, I'm just going to give you a slightly different way of thinking about it, or perhaps one that you've explored before. Mm. But spoken language of of the 3.5 uh, million years that Homo sapiens have been around, spoken language only seems to be around for anywhere between 70 to 50,000 years. Yeah. In fact, if you go back and if you look at human, um, you know, uh, uh, fossils prior to that time, if you look at their palates, the top of the roof of their mouth is flat. Mm. It only became articulated when language became a survival characteristic and your ability to to be able to articulate and make even clearer different sounds suddenly became crucially important. Mm. But we were communicating for a long time before language came around. Yeah. If that's true, then that means that we switched to a different means of communication only recently. And that means that most of our conscious awareness, most of that newest part of our brain is focused on this new kind of communication. But that also means that all those old channels are still there. They are just happening outside of conscious attention. Yes. Now, if that's true, then we must, as hypnotists, modulate our communication so that the majority of what we are saying is being presented on that carrier wave, that analog wave, rather than in simple digital language. You can use digital language in order to direct focus, in order to ask people to think about something or to do something, in order to help them to create a kind of internal representation of something. Yeah. So that you can sort of, you know, set up their holodeck, to use a little Star Trek term. <laughs> So that you can set up, you know, their little virtual uh, theater so that they can run a simulation in their mind. Yeah. You know, as embodied cognition tells us, that's how we think about anything. Mm. But that's the language of the deeper parts of the brain. Mm. Mm. It's the language of felt sense. It's the language of emotion. It's the language of monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. It's, it's the language of authority and leadership. It's the language of cooperation and encouragement. It's the language of, of constructive, adaptive stress, mm. the kind of stress that's good for you and not bad for you. Yes. And it's also the language of relaxation and comfort that allows us to expand our thinking and to engage in the kind of slow thinking that produces new insights and new wisdom based on thinking that we've been doing while we were so busy stressing out over difficult situations. Yeah. All of these things are basically the playground of the hypnotist who is aware mm -hmm. because we can take people into the right states of consciousness in the right ways and then help them to do the right things there in orders, not that we do anything to them, we are simply facilitating them. Coming from the French word facile, meaning easy. We're making it easy for them yeah. to, do, to do the kind of thinking that they need to do to have a transformational experience. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so does, that, does that then 
take you in the direction of a bit because you know within our within our communication prior to um, um prior to recording today um, mm. um you, you made reference to to, to, to really finding a, a scientifically plausible way to 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 get rid of um, um some of the theories the, 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 the pre-existing theories of mind as yeah, you were yeah. looking for you the framework for hypnotic communication and um, yeah. um, you know lots of which you've sort of touched upon already yeah um, um, um how does that how does that then then fit and move into that direction of of of, of mind versus some of what you've already said well okay if we look at the idea of mind as an ontological entity Mm. You know, as a thing that exists, the old theory, you know, and this goes back, uh, not even to Freud, this goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle felt that there was, you know, essentially of what Freud would have called consciousness, who is the charioteer. Yeah. And then there's the passions, there's the desires, there's the flesh, and they're the horses. And so the, the charioteer is in the chariot and he has to master the horses in order to make the horses do what he wants them to do. And so he described his felt sense of a kind of eternal struggle mm. between uh, him, which is the charioteer, and then these other forces, which are, you know, the, 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 the you know, the horses. Now, Freud, uh, he had an even lower opinion <laughs> of the rest of, of the things. So he said, you know what? No, it's more like a farmer on a cart being driven by a mule because mm. the mule is recalcitrant. It doesn't want to cooperate. And the, uh, the old farmer on the cart needs to whip that mule and force it. Mm. Because of course, Freud felt that the mule represented the flesh and the, all of the bad things that human beings have and, and that unconsciously the stuff that was happening outside of awareness was all bad. Mm. It was sex, which he thought was bad because it was mostly about his mother for him, apparently. Yeah. And uh, it was about death because uh, he, he eventually agreed that when Jung said, you know, there's probably death in there, too. You know, Freud said, yeah, you're probably right. So there's there's just bad stuff in there. The unconscious is a cesspool. And the conscious mind is one ontological entity. In fact, it's you. It's the ego. And then there's the rest. And that's all stuff that has to be mastered. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, and, and so Freud's idea of, of his ubermensch was this idea of a person who had perfect conscious control and perfect conscious decision making. Mm. Well, you know, um, Jung eventually came and he he, you know, became a bit of a heretic by saying, you know what? There's probably also good stuff in the unconscious mind. Um, it, it's it's you know, there's transformation there. There's, you know, the archetypes and all of this other sort of thing. And so there's bad stuff, but there's also good stuff. And any any kind of positive transformation also comes from the unconscious. Mm. But the problem is. What we have been learning with modern neuroscience is that not only is there not such a thing as the conscious and the unconscious mind as ontological entities, it appears that there is the mind, which is a product of brain activity, and there is an aspect of mind that is occasionally conscious for a few hours a day. 
but it is only a very small aspect of cognition that is conscious. Mm. Now, Adam, yeah. uh, um, just to, uh, to illustrate very quickly, um, uh, do you speak? Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, okay, so, so <laughs> I, I apologise for my for my pregnant pause there because I was thinking, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I can confirm I do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that's fine. I, I like people who test <laughs> yeah. instead in, instead of just saying, you know what, I, I do. Yeah. Yes, but, I do, but, and there I go. Now, let me ask you a question, Adam. Um, when you speak, where do you assemble the sentences? Hmm. Where do you put together the, the the subject, the predicate, the nouns, the verbs, the conjunctions, um, the adjectives? I'm going to be boring, and I'm going to say the brain. Okay, but uh, brain. You, but but in your conscious awareness, where do you where do you make sentences? Um. So um I'm in, in in my imagination. Okay, so what I'm going to suggest is this: although you have a conscious awareness of speaking. Speaking is not a, con a conscious function. No, no, quite. You, right. you may, you may have some idea of roughly what you're going to say. Yeah. But in fact, you are learning what you say as you say it. Yep, quite. Be and and now most of us would not think about speech as being trans phenomena, yep. but it is. Yeah. Because it's com it's coming from uh, from unconscious. Because in fact, most of what you do consciously. Is, is essentially consciousness is or conscious awareness is really good at helping a part of our thinking take credit for the rest of our thinking. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> when something happens, most of our logic and most of our reasoning goes towards creating a plausible explanation for why it is we did what we did. And then saying that this is why we did it, even though it's not. Now, now it may be that there's some overlap. <laughs> it, it may be that our explanation even has some truth to it. Mm -hmm. but, our, but our explanations are largely fabrications. Yeah. So what I'm going to say is you have a mind. You also have a, a, an attribute that is called conscious awareness. Conscious awareness is a bit like a flashlight, like a little pin flashlight shining around a massive warehouse. Only little bits of that warehouse can come into the light and be seen. Yes. Most, most of the rest of it is assumed mm. or like remembered. That. Yeah. 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 And in, and in fact, imagine further that you can only stand in the front door to the warehouse. So there are places that pen light will never light up mm. because there's no access from here to there. You can't look and see what's going on inside of your cerebellum. No, you, you can't see pre-conscious sorting of visual information as it comes through your optic nerve and into your, into your visual cortex. Mm. None of those things will you ever have conscious access to. But that doesn't mean that they don't contribute to your thinking. There's an experiment that was done some years ago, and and as far as I know, it has not uh, failed to validate. But essentially, what they did was is that they took uh, they took some uh, some dogs, 
And then they took another kind of ad uh, of animal that's called a grad student. Now, grad students are the slave labor of universities everywhere. So, yes. so they're they're kind they're kind of an underclass uh, yes. that are that are used for all kinds of experimentation. I, I, kind of like, I, I'm aware of this point very very much. A bit like lab lab mice, except <laughs> that they pay for the privilege. Yeah. Well, anyway, so so these so what they did was they took these dogs and uh, they they took some shirts from some young uh, grad students who had just exercised in them for about an hour. So they were sweaty, but it's, you know, it's that clean sweat of exercise right after a shower, right? These are not funky smelling shirts. They just are a little bit damp from perspiration. Mm. And so what they did was is that they they took the shirts and they drew a pattern in the lawn. And then they had some dogs sniff the shirts and then set them loose in the lawn. And what they did was that the dogs would follow the pattern that had been, uh, you know, where, of where the shirts had been dragged uh, through the grass. Mm. Now, they took another set of grad students. They had them get on all fours, <laughs> sniff the shirt. <laughs> and then they said, see if you can follow the smell. Yeah. They said, well, it doesn't smell like much. Oh, we don't care. Just try to smell it anyway. And they did it. And essentially their patterns were random. And, you know, just exactly what you would expect from somebody who had no idea what they were looking for. They took a third group of, of grad students and they had them sniff the shirt. And they said, OK, here's what we'd like for you to do. Now that you've smelled the shirt, we would like for you to close your eyes, sniff the grass and go in whatever direction seems right to you. Mm. And, a, and about half of them were able to replicate that pattern beyond the the point of random chance mm. isn't that interesting yeah fascinating absolutely so, so what this suggests is is that people have access to not only wisdom you know like that we usually like to say in, in the kind of these this platitude way in the context yeah. of hypnosis but yeah. they actually have input uh, access to sensory input yeah and to factual sensory data that they don't have any conscious awareness of hmm. a bit like that clock we were talking about earlier, that internal timekeeping system you have that works perfectly, uh, but you don't have conscious access to. Yeah. Right. So therefore what happens when we put you into a state where you can factor these things into your thinking more powerfully than you do under ordinary circumstances. Hmm. A lot of people ask me because sometimes, you know, I talk about uh, the value of hypnosis for people who are doing coaching and performance coaching. And sometimes yeah. people ask me, Michael, why would they why would you need that for coaching? Well, having access to your resources. Yeah, is absolutely. That's absolutely the most important thing a coach can can help any of their clients to do. Mm. How do you help your people go into a state where they do this on a regular basis, where they check in? where they see what condition their condition is in by having access to information that they don't normally access and then having that inform their thinking. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I think that is one of the best cases I've ever had um, yes. for this notion of, uh, you know, I, I love, I love that you prefaced that with, with, with the notion of conscious and unconscious as, as ontological entities and then went on yes. to, to explain them as you did. Um, mm. um, because, you know, I, I, 
I tend to have a bit of a stance with regards to that quite often. And, um, mm. you know, my, my stance softened greatly uh, as you mm. continued to talk, which mm -hmm. was which was which was just wonderful. Now, um, I, I, I've got to ask you the question that I ask all my guests. And, and I, 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 I so want to hear your answer to this. And I realize mm. that I've now just bigged that up um, and I've set myself up for a fall. Um, if, if you could go back to when you started out as as a, as a you know, studying hypnotherapy or, or as a hypnosis professional of any kind, knowing the stuff you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? And if so, what? And is there any advice the person that you are today would give that younger you that you'd extend to our listeners? Okay, if I could go and visit an eight-year-old version of myself, mm. I would say go to Phoenix, Arizona and go hang out with Erickson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because this will make no sense to you, but later you'll be glad that you did it. Mm. And then, then go see Dave Elman, <laughs> 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 you know, and, and you're going to have no idea what the hell's going on, but just go do it anyway. And I'll, and, and I'll tell you why in about 50 years, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, I think that's, now, now this 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 is uh, where we we have a little thing that's called survivor's bias, because mm. survivor's bias says that essentially what happened um, seems so causative that yeah. it's hard to imagine what to do if that doesn't happen. Right. And and so you know in a way I think that in order for me to be the person that I am right now for good bad or worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to go through those experiences because um, they shape me. Yes, there there is a, a, a you know as being half Italian, um, we have to acknowledge for a moment the great sage uh, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, because Frank Sinatra uh, once said, uh, you know, in in one of his great coens, he said, "Dooby dooby doo." <laughs> yeah. Now, what this, what the way that I take this, because I take this as his statement on ontology and epistemology. Mm. We start out with do, which is to do. That's 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 uh, epistemology. Mm. Now, do then results in be. What you do creates who you are. Now, then there's there's do be, and as a result of who you are, then you do. And so, the more that you become something, the more that you do something. But one of the things you'll notice is that do, be, do, be, do has more do's than be's. Yeah. Because because what you do is more important than who you are because who you are is shaped by what you do. And therefore, it must be a perpetual cycle with a greater focus on doing than being. Now, again, Frank Sinatra thought deeply about these things. <laughs> and I'm so glad that he he passed them on to us. So I guess... I guess the one thing that I would probably advise myself is I'm gonna, I, I would probably tell myself, you know, you're going to go through a lot of things that are going to create who you are. Mm. And I think that you will be well served, whether you think this experience is good, whether you think this experience is bad, or whether you think this experience is anything in the middle. Do your best to be in the moment and have whatever that experience is mm. because whatever it is, good, bad or indifferent, you will learn from it. 
and you will learn from everyone you ever meet, even if it is only how not to do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that that's probably the greatest advice I could ever give myself. Um, and it's certainly the advice that I try to give myself every day now mm-hmm. because I, I learned, I learned so much from my clients. I learned so much from my friends because they all present to me an opportunity for experience. And if I put aside my preconceived notions and my little story about what this is supposed to mean and what this is supposed to say and who these people are supposed to be, and I just let myself have the experience of them and of whatever they offer me, then I learn. Mm. And and I learn it so much more deeply than I would if I would insist that I knew what was going on in advance. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, I, 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 I love that. I love that. Um, um, Michael, now, um, um, where can people go to learn more about you, your work? So you want me to tell you want me to tell them where they can go because <laughs> I got some words for Well, you know, um, you can now if you want to work with me personally, if you'd like to get some some, you know, some some mentoring done or some some hypnosis stuff um, or some guidance of any kind, you can visit me at Michael Perez hypnosis. That's all one word. Michael Perez hypnosis dot com. And if you would like to uh, it, attend some of these newfangled, uh, funky hypnotic communication uh, things that I do, informed by this kind of generalist attitude and also uh, modern neuroscience, mm. uh, that's uh, something I call the Neuron Code, mm. which is a code for hypnotic communication. And you can look up my latest Neuron Code trainings at neuroncode.com that's n-e-u-r-o-n the american spelling neuroncode c-o-d-e.com great great and we will have links to 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 both of those um um, on this episode's page of the hypnosis weekly website um Mm. um, um, we are you know i i I just want to keep asking you stuff um um, we're we're out of time i'm happy i'm happy i'm happy to keep answering (laughs) well you know we have to have you uh, we have to have you come back on because uh, undoubtedly i will get lots of lots of questions and and observations and feedback from from our listeners um um really all that leaves me to all, all that's left for me to say today is um mr michael perez thank you for being uh, so generous with with and so giving with with information you know so much packed into every sentence i can't wait to listen back to this myself i uh, thank you for being um, um this week's guest on the hypnosis weekly podcast adam can i uh, just to say very briefly um first off i thank you for being a gracious host uh, secondly uh, i've you know followed uh, your own work and i appreciate that work I think it's uh, I, th- I think I, I really appreciate the approach you take to these things. And um, I also appreciate just the um, the spirit of curiosity you brought to this conversation mm. that was very uh, helpful in facilitating me and in, in getting this out in something that I hope will be understandable and perhaps helpful for folks listening in. Oh, absolutely. It will. Absolutely. It will. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. I really
really enjoyed that. I especially enjoyed uh, Michael's humility at the end there, him hoping that it all comes together with some coherence. Um, and, and did it ever. Really great stuff. Sincere thanks to Michael and his generosity when, uh, of spirit with everything that, uh, that he offers up. Um, instead of the usual hypnosis in the news section, I wanted to discuss a topic that I get asked a great deal um, about. Um, and that that, that of mindfulness and self-hypnosis is one of those questions that I get asked a lot, especially um, on my Science of Self-Hypnosis seminars. You know, what's the difference between self-hypnosis that you're teaching us and mindful meditation? Is there actually any difference between the two? And as it happens, there have been a number of hypnosis researchers and academics who have considered combining the two. And some have suggested the merits of integrating and thusly maximizing the benefits of both hypnosis and mindfulness. And um, the prolific researcher Stephen J. Lynn, Otani, Williams um, have all conducted studies and made suggestions within the literature, which tends to suggest, uh, perhaps, that the two do in fact have some parallels and can potentially fit together. But how do they compare as sort of standalone entities and approaches? And what are the what are the differences between the two? You know, to be honest, when you look purely at the research and examine the literature regarding mindfulness and meditation on their own, the systematic reviews and meta-analyses of meditation for psychological and physiological well-being do offer up mixed results despite the popularity. One particular review of mindfulness for psychological stress, for example, stated that mindfulness meditation programs in particular indicated small improvements in anxiety, depression and pain with moderate evidence and small improvements in stress. Similarly, there's been other studies concluded um, um, that whilst early findings from treatment outcomes um, provided support for the application of mindfulness-based interventions in the treatment of anxiety, direct evidence um, um, of it, of mindfulness meditation per se, um, perhaps needed more, more more research and so on um, um, to really get a sense of uh, on the flip side um, um, there are there's, the variety of applications for meditation does seem to center around stress anxiety and pain um, within the major reviews yet the applications of self-hypnosis certainly those cited in my own books and within my own literature reviews within my PhD studies um, um, would appear to be rather rather more far-reaching. Despite that, um, a mindfulness meditation has already achieved a, a level of credibility and popularity and acceptance by the public and professional communities that perhaps are the envy of heterohypnosis and self-hypnosis, you know, something that we, we would hope to aspire towards. Um, in his book um, 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 on mindfulness and hypnosis, Michael Yapko um, 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 looks to combine the benefits of both mindfulness and hypnosis and suggests that... Um, 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 that the, perhaps there is an image crisis or that the, the field of hypnosis has that is created by TV and film representations um, um, of hypnosis in a way that they contribute to much myth and misconception, whereas mindfulness has not faced any of the same types of portrayal, despite hypnosis and mindfulness sharing many core values. Um, likewise, I tend to think the practitioners of mindfulness tend not to have such a variance in the way they approach the subject and tend to make less unfounded claims about what they can and can't do, which tends to be one of the major um, and rather prolific problems in the field of hypnosis, in my personal opinion. 
There has been a rare review of both mindfulness and hypnosis in the literature by Holroyd in 2003, who drew parallels from meditation and hypnosis investigations, highlighting similar parts of the brain were being used in both. And Holroyd actually went on to state that when suggestions for self-enhancing experiences are given during mindful meditation, that it became indistinguishable from hypnosis. Similarly, um, Simpkins and Simpkins in 2010 identified a shared neurobiology between meditation and hypnosis, in particular highlighting the brain structures associated with focus and attention. The neuroscience of hypnosis and meditation is still largely inconclusive, however, um, um, and as um, um, as the researchers Halkvist um, and colleagues stated, that researchers' understanding of the specific meaning of neurophysiological activity is still a little bit rudimentary. Michael Yapko therefore surmises that it's perhaps premature to conclude that meditation and hypnosis are neurophysiologically the same or different. If it is too soon to suggest that they are the same, um, um, what about subjective experiences? You know, I have many, many people tell me that self-hypnosis and mindfulness feel the same to them and that they share qualities within their experience. And Holroyd, again, in that review, goes on to highlight these phenomenological similarities that are cited in meditation and self-hypnosis studies and has stated that um, 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 both of them were associated with things like alterations in self self-awareness, sense of time, perception, for example, and that there are changes in imagery vividness that tended to be accompanied by, by feelings of reverie, you know, joy and love. Um, meditative techniques do tend to be categorized as emphasizing mindfulness and concentration, which do share some parallels with the way which self-hypnosis has been conceptualized as a self-regulated skill, certainly within my own research and writings. That said, I believe that there is a fundamental difference between the two, and that is that the underlying philosophy of mindfulness does aim to dissuade meditators from being goal-focused necessarily. In fact, in his audio program, Mindfulness for Beginners, um, author, uh, the prolific, well-known author, John Kabat-Zinn states, and I'll quote him, there's no place to go, nothing to attain. It's realizing you are already here, so there's no place else to go. What happens now is what matters. The future we want is here now. We are already in it. And there are many other examples of this throughout the literature on mindful meditation. And in contrast, self-hypnosis is an overtly goal-oriented process. We use very particular forms of imagery, self-suggestion, cognitive processes, and so on, in order to affect and create change to overcome challenges and issues and to advance abilities. It's goal-directed striving, for sure. And so perhaps mindful meditation has the beneficial effects highlighted in some of these reviews as a byproduct of engaging in it, whereas the goal-directed nature of self-hypnosis might seem to make it a more direct process with a potentially wider range of very specific applications.
You know, for me, there are numerous other differences, um, primarily phenomenological, um, um, but I'm, I'm not talking about them so much as, as, as I didn't want to be too subjective with what I was talking about today. Um, I read a blog article on this very topic and some of the comments about it um, um, are really insightful. So do go and have a read if you'd like references um, um, that I've mentioned and any further discussion. And there's a link um, to that over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Next up, um, um, we have, and finally today, our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. I'm sort of running straight into it. And the fact of the week is simply this. Self-hypnosis reduces frequency and levels of distress of chronic tension headaches. Um, so yeah, uh, a study conducted by Spinhoven, Linson, Van Dyke and Zittman back in 1992 showed and demonstrated that self-hypnosis training reduced the frequency and level of distress significantly compared to waiting list control groups when it came to reducing chronic tension headaches. The, the pain reduction was also uh, accompanied by an increase in perceived pain control. And I mention this because, you know, certainly I believe and, and my own research has led me to believe self-efficacy plays a really important part um, within self-hypnosis. And it's something that I believe is overlooked in, in, in hypnosis discussion in general. So, yes, indeed, there you have it. Self-hypnosis reduces frequency and levels of distress of chronic tension headaches. And a link to that research paper that's included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So that is it for this week's Bumper 75th edition. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all remaining friends. Next time out I'm going to be welcoming Melvin Marsh of After Hours Hypnotherapy over in Augusta, Georgia uh, in the US and we'll be talking about his own journey and specialising in transgender issues and some fascinating discussion to be had um, um, that I think you're really going to enjoy. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com and as always I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else and help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again go to Michael A. Perez. My thanks to you as always for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>